Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column here, here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular podcast on all things Brexity. With technical talks underway in Brussels on the transition phase, which I think it's fair to say most people believe is likely to be agreed by the end of March, this week we're going to be discussing a question that's increasingly being asked on this side of the channel, not least by British business. Should the UK stay in a customs union with the EU? And we'll also chew over what we learned from a much-talked-about visit to Britain by the French president, Emmanuel Macron. With me in the studio is Dan Roberts, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, and on the line is our Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to both of you. Um, let's start with Mr Macron, shall we, who went down an absolute storm in London, mainly, it has to be said, for his refreshing willingness to engage with his interviewers, think on his feet and actually try to answer the question, which was something of a contrast with some of our own dear representatives. But that aside, there was also considerable excitement about a remark that the French president made, which some observers thought might have hinted that there may be some kind of sliding scale of future future trade deals open to Britain. What he actually said was he thought the UK might end up with something between full single market access and a free trade deal. Now, uh, the French embassy has since made it very clear that Macron, whose English is good but not absolutely perfect, was not, in fact, diverging from the standard no-cherry-picking EU line. But the alacrity with which parts of the British media and some British politicians jumped on what looked like even the slightest possibility that Britain might get some kind of special treatment was quite telling at this stage of, of the negotiations, don't you think, Dan? Uh, yes, I think that people are looking for any chink they can get. And I think in the long run, it makes sense. And I wouldn't be surprised if we do end up with a sort of free trade agreement plus, maybe a plus, plus, plus even. <laughs> Getting there in the next 12 months, I think, is going to be very tricky. Um, and it's a question of whether or not the British government can see enough hope for the future 
will diffuse some of the political criticism. David Davis was giving a select committee appearance this morning where he talked very interestingly about his primary aim, how he wants to be judged in 30 years, he talked about, was how much flexibility he gave future governments to diverge from European regulations. And the real killer implication there was that Right now, he doesn't see much divergence. He really, I I think, would not be terribly surprised if we ended up looking very much like a sort of single market Norway-type position Mm. um, post-exit. The key thing for him is that there's something baked in that allows somebody to change their mind in future. And that's a really interesting shift that may allow for a kind of Macron-esque compromise. Right. And uh, there's also a sense, I suppose, that, you know, the idea of a, a special deal, in a sense, Every deal will be special in that they're all unique. Aren't they? <laughs> it's like your children. It's, they're, all, they're all different. Yes. No, I think that's right. Of course, it'll be a bespoke deal. This has never been done before, so it's bound to be. The, the, the key thing is there is this trade-off between access and sovereignty, and there's no, go, there's no way around that. We're not going to get both access and sovereignty. They are two sides of the same coin, and you have one less of one and the other, more of the other. So the question then becomes, do we have an opportunity to sort of tweak that sliding scale in future? And I think that's where there might be scope for the government to fudge this. Mm. To begin with, we stay very, very close. We have very high regulatory. uh, 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 They're not calling it alignment now. They're calling it equivalence is the current (laughs) phrase of today. Um, But in the the future, who knows? Another government might decide they want less equivalence and will have Mm. less market access. Mm. But that's for somebody else to worry, another prime minister to worry about in another lifetime. So I think that's how we're current. The fudge is looking today. Jennifer, how do you think the EU will respond to that then? I mean, Macron actually made it pretty clear, I think, that the future trade deal as we've just said, could be basically as special as the UK wanted. It will just depend on what Britain is prepared to put on the table in exchange. And and of course, the UK's familiar red lines on, on budget payments and free movement and the European Court of Justice and all that rule out a lot of options. I mean, he also stressed repeatedly that Michel Barnier was the EU's negotiator and not him. And even if some of the British press really exaggerated his comments and and claimed that this marked a kind of a significant softening in in France's stance and what have you, you know, I mean, it is a fact that we are entering a phase now where different EU members are going to be wanting different things aren't we? Uh, I mean, do you think we're going to see much more of this, of, of, of you know, the remarks of, of, of various continental politicians being stretched to their maximum this side of the channel? And is there any hope of a sort of a divide and rule approach by Britain getting anywhere? I'm sure we'll certainly see more of reading as much as possible into remarks of, of EU leaders. And it seems to me that the word special has a lot to answer for. And <laughs> when the British political class is here and everyone goes a bit weak at the knees, whether it's a special deal or the special relationship. But I, I do think that Macron didn't really go much further than or any, any further than what we've heard before from other EU leaders from uh, Michel Barnier himself. And I was very struck, as you said, by the, the number of times he mentioned that uh, Barnier was the negotiator for the EU, which and it really was clear he wanted to shore up uh, his position and make clear to the British that there wouldn't be a, a back channel of negotiations with France or individual countries. And yes, I think you're absolutely right that we are entering that phase where the differences will emerge more clearly between the 27 member states. Although I feel that we haven't quite got there yet, that everyone's aware that this tension is there, but the EU 27 is still very much in the 
at, at, a, at a stage where they can all agree that they would like to protect the integrity of the single market. Mm. And they see very clearly the, the UK's red lines when it comes to budget free movement in the European Court of Justice. And that puts them in quite a comfortable position of being able to say, well, this rules out so many different options. And now it's up to you, British government, to tell us what you want. And, and we're still, in a way, in a sense of the, in a, in a sense, in the phase one uh, drama, even though we've moved on from phase one, we're still getting a very familiar message. There's still the same kind of dynamic, yes. And do you think, just just briefly on, on what Dan was saying there, which I thought was very interesting, this idea that, you know, what David Davis is ultimately after is to create some kind of future wiggle room. Is that being picked up on in Brussels, do you think? Yes, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of attention that's been paid to a, a paper by the Institute for Government, the UK think tank, which is seen as very much reflecting the UK government's thinking and that it sort of sets out ideas as to how to manage divergence in the future. So maybe the UK could start um, slowly over time um, moving away from EU regulations in mm. certain agreed sectors of the economy. But, the, but on the EU side, there's not a lot of appetite for this. And it's very much seen as, as cherry picking and they, they want to have a whole package covering the, the economy that either you sign up to everything you sign up to be in the single market or you're outside. Mm. So, so I can see why the British government are exploring these ideas, but, but it hasn't got to the stage yet where the EU, these ideas are having any traction with the EU. And we're still very much in the, this getting this, this tough line that it really has to be your in or out. That, that rules is rules, basically. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, that's all really interesting. I'd like to look briefly now at this question of the customs union, which is really coming, has, has kind of dominated a little bit the debate in the UK these past few days. To be more precise, I should probably say a customs union rather than the customs union. It may all sound a bit technical, but it, uh, it probably is going to be absolutely critical to the way things turn out. Now, as Dan mentioned, as we're recording this, the Brexit Secretary David Davis has just finished telling the Commons Brexit Select Committee that it is essential that Britain leaves the customs union, as Theresa May has said it will do, in order to be able to negotiate free trade deals around the globe. Now, that for Brexiteers is sort of the holy grail, one of the really one of the main, main goals of Brexit. And Davis also said, and, and Brexiters seem to believe, that these free trade agreements that the UK is going to sign with countries outside the EU will radically boost British trade. Davis claimed by up to 40%, although where that figure came from is, is anybody's guess. And, you know, some leading Brexit campaigners this week, we've seen Liam Fox and Boris Johnson already demanding that this, and, and speaking of this Brexit dividend as, as if it is a fact. But the CBI, which represents Britain's leading businesses and particularly its exporters, also said this week very forcefully that Britain must stay in a customs union and indeed the single market until there's some actual evidence that these free trade agreements outside the EU will actually outweigh the hit that, that most economists seem to think British trade will take from Brexit. And indeed, the, the Treasury and, and, and the government's, the, the Office of Budget Responsibility say the same. They're very doubtful there'll be any kind of Brexit dividend at all, certainly in the short to medium term. So 
This is becoming a, a major topic of debate. Dan, the CBI are pretty exercised about this. They seemed it this week. Is this really sort of British business biting back? The, the, you have to presume that businesses operate on hard numbers. And is this about them essentially sort of running out of patience with, with vague promises. A little bit. I mean, I think that the key thing to remember about the CBI is it's formed of many different businesses with many different views on this. And what you're seeing is a gradual shift in the consensus and it getting a lot bolder in the last few weeks on this question of single market customs union. If you remember last year, they got a lot of stick from the government for suggesting that we should stay in the single market and customs union as long as it took to negotiate the transition. And and that was seen as um, a hugely sacrilegious then. So now to have moved to the state where they're now saying that this should be a permanent state of affairs is a big step forward. I've heard and have reported this week that there are many senior levels within the CBI who would like it to go further and would like it to join the dots and say, well, you know, in that case, why are we leaving? Mm. And they would like business to take a much more active role in saying, no, look, this trade, whatever may negotiate should be put to the country in some form or another and allow people to have a final say on whether this all makes sense. But I think to back to the question of why customs union and why now, I think customs union debate is a really interesting one because it's a binary thing. It's a bit like the border with Northern Ireland and why that became a more focus. It's impossible to fudge. You either have it or you don't. You either have a customs union uh, that has a common external tariff and prevents you from dealing, doing trade deals with other countries, or, 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 or you just have a much looser customs agreement, mm. which is what the government would prefer, that minimizes the delays at, at customs but preserves different tariffs that allows you to strike different trade deals mm. elsewhere. And the, the fact that that's binary is really important because if you're going to stop a lorry, whether you're stopping it mm. to, because it's got, you've got a 1% tariff on goods or a 5% tariff or phytosanitary checks or whatever mm. you're stopping it for, you're stopping it. And no matter how much the government will go on, Davis this morning was talking about how well on the US-Canada border it only takes 54 seconds to check a truck. Well, <laughs> 54 seconds causes a tailback. I've been on the US-Canada border and it, I've been stuck in three-hour traffic jams. <laughs> now, it might only have taken 54 seconds when you actually got to the guy in the booth, but nonetheless, that grinds things mm. to, to uh, down and, and means it's unreliable if you're planning, if you've got factories either side of the border and so forth. So that's why the customs, why, why British business is so exercised about our customs union and and making sure there is complete frictionless trade because any amount of friction gums it up and is mm. unpredictable mm. so there isn't a way of fudging it you can't half have a customs union there is also but there's also a kind of sense isn't there of of you know british you know the government basically saying to british business you know brexit's going to be brilliant uh full of opportunity for you and and business saying uh uh, hang on, uh, we don't actually think it is. Uh, and the government come back and saying, well, you know, do, are you sure you know what you're talking about? I mean, it's surreal. And in fact, it's not even the government. It's parts of the government that are ideologically obsessed with with um, striking free trade deals, largely because they have it in their job titles, like Liam Fox or, or, yeah. or, or uh, by implication, David Davis. What's really interesting is, um, as you and I have been talking about this week, the um, Treasury did some um, research right back at the beginning of the Brexit process where they looked at the potential upside of new free trade deals with countries that are a long way away and that we don't trade very much with. And they and they very quickly established that there is a far smaller benefit to be had from, say, a new trade deal with Australia than we could possibly uh, compensate for losses of, of lost mm. trade with France or Germany. And that's the same logic that the CBI is applying and resurfacing this week. Mm. It's simply 
implausible. The numbers don't stack up. And no matter how much they can talk about, well, the fast-growing bits of the economy of the world economy are in Asia. Mm. Well, that's fine. But um, we, we would have to see not just sort of the 25, 40% increases in trade that, that Davis was blithely throwing around this morning. We'd have to see sort of quadrupling of trade yeah. with these yeah. with these countries in order to j- offset the loss we would see. In and, the and you'd have to see a kind of a wholesale retooling of the British economy and the kind of the kind of products that, that people sell and where they sell. Yes. Check- so, sorry, just to, on yeah. that very point, yeah. one of the most telling lines he said today was, well, of course the CBI say this because the companies that will benefit from our brave new world, they don't even exist today. Let alone, <laughs> they're not let alone okay. CBI members. Okay. Well, I mean, that's quite a retooling. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Jennifer, Britain is talking about negotiating these the, these free trade agreements with the rest of the world um, quite blithely. I mean, you, you've looked in the past at quite how complex that could be. And as as the transition talks are going on as we speak, do we, you know, what actually is practically possible? What can, do, do we have any word on whether Britain can actually begin negotiating these deals during the transition period, for example? And what's going to happen to those deals um, of which Britain is a part at the moment purely because it's a member of the, uh, of the, uh, of the EU? How easy is it going to be to sort of just roll those over? Well, it, it, it's a very, it'd be a very big question for the, for the government. And I think the EU has arrived at the position where the UK will, they will be okay with the UK negotiating new trade agreements during the transition period. I mean, initially there was this idea that no negotiations would take place in this, the so-called doctrine of sincere cooperation. Mm. But now it seems that at least there's a sort of, there's a, a degree of, well, it's fine for, for you to go and negotiate your own free trade agreements as long as you don't sign them. And by the way, good luck with that. <laughs> and Michel Barnier even pointed out rather tartly at the end of last year that, of course, there are 750 international agreements that the UK will have to renegotiate when it drops out of the EU, not just trade agreements, but all manner of agreements covering fisheries, environment, mm. and all sorts of um, other uh, commercial policies as well. So so there's a feeling that the, the UK can get on and, and do this. Uh, while it's in the EU during the transition, it will be covered by all the existing agreements that the EU has, which at the, the last count are around 34 different trade agreements with 60 countries. Mm. So that's around, I think, two-thirds of, um, of, of UK, covering two-thirds of UK exports. So the UK will have to renegotiate these agreements individually with the countries to to, to sort of manage them so it Mm. can can become a bilateral agreement. And and in theory, that shouldn't present any problems. But in practice, nobody knows. Mm. I mean, the the countries may use it as a a way to a chance to, to ask for something else, to ask to renegotiate it. And I think these are open questions which we'll only find the answers to as as things get underway. Right. Dan, you want to... I was just going to say, amplify that point on one, to give one very concrete example, uh, US-UK aviation talks, which I'm told resume in London next week. Um, These are really important because not only um, um, do we uh, have to renegotiate our flight rights um, in Europe, but um, currently our right to fly to the US is through a European treaty of, of of the 750 that Jennifer mentions. But the real sticking point is that the, the US is very keen to find out what our European deal is going to look like before they agree the one with us. And we're in a bit of a chicken and egg there because they want to have some clarity mm. about what, you know, what, what are the 
flight through rights going to be and there are these seven freedoms in aviation treaties that 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 that, that are very interconnected so it's it's not simply a question of of agreeing these 750 um in sequence they have to be done in parallel all of this has to be done almost as as a whole to make any sense mm. yeah it's going to be an immensely complex exercise isn't it i mean i just dan just um, briefly one more thing sort of leading on from that really um you mentioned earlier that, you know that, that the cbi this week dropped a pretty strong hint that the sort of the ultimate logic of its case on on the customs union and the single market was that Brexit could or might might or could or even should be reversed or at least softened really dramatically. Do you, do you detect a change of mood around at the moment? Is there is there in the Remain camp sort of bolstered by this 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 industrial argument, this economic argument, a mood of growing confidence that Brexit could be turned around once the whole thing is really confronted with? the evidence yes um although just for a second i just need to correct you Mm. um on the cbi i wasn't suggesting the cbi itself is ready to invoke that position i'm told there are people at the top of the organization who would like to go there but the organization itself hasn't gone there yet they got quite cross with me for okay for suggesting just to clear that one up um but to your broader question absolutely i detect a real um shift in the mood in the last couple of months i put it down to a few things one is just a realization how of how empty Theresa may's hand is how how uh, how, uh, how the deal she struck in December and the one she's likely to take to Parliament in the autumn are not going to please anybody. Um, um, th- secondly, it's that sort of um, uh, 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 combination of hug and 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 and, and sort of hard grasp from the, the other European leaders saying, you know, perhaps you could change your mind. You mm. know, we'd still be open. Uh, and the fact we've seen people like Nigel Farage talk about a second referendum and the need for one to kind of give a mandate for the type of mm. full-throated Brexit that he would like to see so i still think the chances are infinitesimal it's there's a lot of ifs and buts but i detect that what what has shifted is that the remain campaigns are no longer campaigning for a softening of brexit they are genuinely saying now their mantra is one of we should give the country a chance to um, rethink once they know what the deal is once they know what the terms are whether that's a referendum or a general election or a parliamentary vote they're not going there yet. They just want to establish the principle that Brexit should have a democratic accountability throughout the process, mm. not just at the outset. I think that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, very interesting. OK, one final thing, Jennifer, um, just back to you, if I could. Um, I was very struck this week by um, a tweet from Germany's Brexit chief, Peter Tasek, who, who said... Sufficient progress in withdrawal questions meant we are not there yet. Much more work to be done. Many leftovers will surface when the Commission starts drafting legal withdrawal agreement, i.e. the text on Ireland. Now, you know, a lot of people assuming that phase one is basically done and dusted, but it isn't, is it? And what do you think is the potential for this this this? The drafting of this, the sort of the legalization of this rather vague, on many points, agreement that was reached on phase one at the end of last year. What's the potential for that to derail things? And what do you think might be the biggest stumbling block? Yes, I think it's a, it's a bit of a minefield, really, because it's we had sufficient progress last year, but that doesn't mean it's all finished. And there's still quite a long way to go on, on several issues. But it really sort of divides into three areas, I think, that first of all, you have to get a, a legal text. You have to transform that agreement 
of December into a proper legal document, sort of contrary to what David Davis appeared to be suggesting this morning. Mm. And that's sort of seen as something that's relatively straightforward, unlikely to be a to be a major stumbling block. But of course, the content is the, the yes. problem. And that's really the second point of the all the other issues, the issues that have got probably less attention in the process so far, such as um, the governance of the withdrawal agreement. You know, who do you go to if there's a dispute? Mm. The EU would like the European Court of Justice to, to underwrite the whole process, whereas the, that for the UK, as we know, is a red line. Then you have other issues about goods on the market, what's happening to all those um, products that are in transit on Brexit Day or and, and at the end of a transition. Um, then you also have issues around Euratom as well. And it's quite clear that there is still some serious issues to be resolved there. Hmm. And uh, I think that the timing of the, the tweet from um, from the German Brexit envoy was very interesting because it came only a few days after there had been technical talks in Brussels between the EU and the UK side. And I think there's some surprise on the EU side that the UK weren't coming to them with more ideas and more uh, readiness to sit down and resolve these issues. They felt that the UK hadn't really done very much work since December and I think that's caused some alarm. So I think the timing of the tweet is no accident. And then really the, the final area that is worth drawing attention to the, is, um, is Ireland, of mm, course, which, mm. um, which Peter Patasek mentions that uh, it is the big unsolved question. And how do you square the circle of having no hard border while leaving the customs union? We still don't know. So it goes back to the, the fundamental question of what does Brexit really mean? Exactly. And, and this is still the big issue to be, to be unpicked. It's a question that's been deferred rather than answered. Exactly. And the one that, you know, a lot of people feel could be uh, could be the one that, uh, that that really derails things okay so thanks to dan and jennifer for joining me today next week we're discussing germany and brexit so if you have any questions about that do please email us at brexit podcast that's all one word brexit podcast at theguardian.com Please subscribe, review this podcast on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. Just search for Guardian Podcasts. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.